Amen. Hey, this morning we are picking up in verse 8. We'll be in verses 8 through 14 in the book of Philemon as we continue our three-week study in this short letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, as we look at this, we recognize that the backdrop of the entire letter to Philemon is the issue of redemption. And so you've got this guy who has, has run away, he has left the community, and then subsequent to that, he's come to faith, and now Paul is sending him back uh, to his owner, to this community. And so the whole thing is this picture of redemption that is played out within the watching eye of this church body as they read out loud this letter to Philemon and, and wait to see his responses. How is this going to affect him? How is this going to be played out between he and, and Onesimus? And what is this going to look like? But, but within the realm or within this command of redemption, we also see this story and this kind of unfolding action of what reconciliation is going to look like for this family, what reconciliation is going to look like for this community. And we find the need for reconciliation being so incredibly important to us in our modern lives, to us in our present experience. Some of us, as we think about our lives and our current experiences, recognize that what we need within our lives is reconciliation to take place, to have its full effect within our marriages. And so we see uh, that, that we know some of us, and we know that some of our friends and some of our kids and some of our parents live in the midst of fractured marriages. So we have husbands that have left wives, wives that have left husbands, husbands and wives that are together in a home, but they're not together on really anything except for their complete and utter animosity and disregard for the other. And so within that relationship, we see the need for, the necessity for reconciliation. Some of us as, as parents, what we need in the midst of this is we recognize we need reconciliation with our kids. Our kids have sinned against us. We have sinned against our children. Our relationship with them is fractured. And so what we need in the midst of these things is reconciliation. We need to come back together. In the midst of a, a highly contentious election season and even before that, so many different opinions on any, any number of things and really only within our minds one right way of doing any one of those things, right? We recognize that we've lost friends, that we have severed relationships and what we need in the midst of those relationships is not for people to agree with us. What we need in those relationships is reconciliation and we need it to have its full effect to restore those relationships so that they might be God-honoring and so that we might present and live out the power of redemption at work in the midst of reconciliation. And there's so many things that we recognize the importance and the weight of reconciliation coming and needing to be played out at. Now, what's particularly important for us is we see this played out within the realm of the local church. And so you can think of any number of reasons people have left the local church. We can think right now in the midst of our local church, people that have chosen to stay home because they've disagreed with some action that's been taken. And so I'm not talking about people that are staying home right now because they are physically sick, because they recognize that they have some type of comorbidity, because they are caring for someone and they don't want to be exposed, and so they're taking safe choices in this. I'm talking about the person of the family that has chosen to stay home simply on the basis that they disbelieve or they disregard or they completely push to the side and they say, I can't abide this decision. I can't abide that decision and until that decision is changed until that action is different I won't come until this action is different I won't come 
Now, what happens in there? What happens in there is the belief that when this action changes, so let's just take the issue of masks. And so to attend Ridgecrest in person, we require that you wear a mask on campus. And we have people that have decided, for whatever reason, that that's too much for them. Now, we have people that have legitimate health reasons and they can't wear them. But we have others that, for them, that's too much for them. And that issue, being asked to do this, being required of that, they won't come. They're not going to be here. And within some of the folks, in their mind, when that is lifted, when that's no longer a requirement, they're going to return. And so for them, the issue of reconciliation hinges on a decision. Now, this is why this is ultimately a bad idea. Now, say we get rid of the mask requirement and, and Pfizer's stock goes through the roof because we're able to get the vaccine and we're walking down the street licking hands and high-fiving and licking hands again. That's how sure we are we'll be safe. Listen, if we're ever that safe, just count me out. <laughs> count me out. I don't want to ever be that safe with you. That's disgusting. But because the fracture has taken place, reconciliation is not one by dropping the mask requirement. Reconciliation can be one, but it requires conversations. It requires a sharing of hearts. It requires coming together. And a mask didn't create an obstacle to reconciliation, and a mask did not create the breach. But reconciliation is a requirement for Christians. If you are redeemed, if you are a part of the bride of Christ, if you count Jesus and you point at him and you say, he is my salvation, in him I find the forgiveness of sins, and you are at odds with another brother and sister in Christ, that is not a tension, that is not a, 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 that is not a reality that gets to continue in your life. Christians are those who are constantly doing the hard difficult but necessary work of reconciliation because we are those who have been reconciled and because we have been reconciled we are calling one another constantly to be reconciled one to another because that is the best way and the only way that we display the perfect love of Christ amen amen well let's look at what Paul says about the issue of reconciliation starting in verse 8 he says accordingly though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Let us pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. God, I pray that in these moments, as we have opportunity to reflect upon your word, that we would be those who give ourselves to submitting to your Holy Spirit's work. God, we pray that your spirit would be at work in this place, stirring us up, revealing to us sin that is holding on to our lives, revealing to us in this time where we have fractured relationships within our marriage, 
within our friendships, within this body, within the larger community, and calling us to the hard work of reconciliation. God, I pray that you would clear our minds and help us to focus on your word. I pray that you would be honored and glorified as we gather in this place. Let us be a people who honor you. Let us be a people who resemble you. And let us be a people who approach your word in a desire to grow closer to you. Father, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul has opened this up and and he's getting ready to make this move and he's making an argument that Onesimus needs to be returned. He needs to be accepted into the community. And this is going to require hard work on Philemon's behalf. And so he's getting ready to kind of base his argument, and he wants him to understand from where it's coming from. So it's instructive to us, as we look at verse 8, we recognize that this, this call for, uh, verses 8 and 9, that this call for reconciliation is coming from a place that is characterized by love. He says, accordingly. And so he's asking us to remember these virtues and these characteristics of Philemon. So if you look back at verses 5 and 7, Look at what we recognize in Philemon. Look at the things that are prevalent in his life. Verse 5 said, he said, Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. So as Philemon is there and he's operating and he's working in the midst of the city of Colossae and within this church, the people of the community and the people of the church, they feel they experience his love. They feel and experience his love. They feel and experience his involvement in their lives. So Philemon is not satisfied merely with having a vertical relationship with God, but he recognizes that his vertical relationship with God is translated into a horizontal application for the people around him. And then you get into verse 7, and what we recognize is that Paul says, listen, you care for people so well that I am loved and comforted because I hear how people have been refreshed through you. Philemon's refreshing his active involvement in the life of this local body has so hit and impacted the Apostle Paul that hundreds of miles away he finds himself comforted and refreshed and loved. He is impacted remotely because he hears how amazing things are going on in this local church hundreds of miles away. So what's Paul saying? Essentially, he's making this argument. Because I know you're an upstanding, because I know you're an obedient, because I know you're a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, I don't have to tell you what to do. I can appeal to you to do what is required. So this gives us a couple of uh, impressions. One, that there is something required of him. He can't just get the letter, sit back and think, well, golly gee, Paul, that was really swell. Thanks for the encouraging note. It's going to require, it's going to ask something of him, but also within this, we see that Philemon is going to have to do the hard work himself. He's going to have to do the investigation himself. He's going to have to look into it himself to see what it is exactly that Paul is asking of him. He says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Have you noticed how much more healthy, how much more vibrant our relationships become when we move from those who bark orders and issue demands to those who make an appeal on the basis of love? It changes and it translates everything and it transforms everything. So this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to teach this church there in Colossae. When you have brothers and sisters who disagree, when you have opposition, when you have difficulties, when in the midst of the church, it would seem to us that the cleaner approach is to, hey man, cut that out and start doing the right thing. Cut that out and start doing the right thing. But the more difficult thing, the more necessary thing over the long haul within the life of the church is to make an appeal on the basis of of love. Now Philemon got this. 
He's constantly engaged in the midst of dispensing his love and allowing his love to visit the people around him. And on the basis of this, Paul recognizes that this is a brother who is mature, that this is a brother who is walking actively in his faith. And so he models his impact, he models his appeal and his request to tailor to where Philemon is in his spiritual walk. He says, I I prefer to appeal to you. Look how he describes himself. He says, I, Paul... An old man, likely in his uh, late 60s, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not saying if you're in your 60s, you're old. I'm just saying if you live in the first century in your 60s, you're old. The 60s is the new 40. <laughs> 30, whatever you want it to be. Right, create your own reality right there. I mean, I wouldn't try and do anything extreme. It, uh, never mind. Let's just move on. Boy, that went downhill in a hurry. And so Paul's description of himself really is kind of interesting. You know, Paul elsewhere appeals to the fact that he's an apostle. I'm an apostle for Christ Jesus' sake. And what that does is puts him in, in, a, in an elite group, so to speak, so that when he makes requests and when he makes a demand, you hear and you feel the weight of that. Oh, this is a guy. I better do what he tells me to because of his relationship, because of his experiences. But look at what Paul does. He tries to bring himself down into this incredibly low posture and position. He says, I'm an old man. In essence, I don't have a whole lot of time left in the midst of my ministry, and I'm in prison. I am restricted. And so Philemon could hear this, and on the basis basis of this say, well, I can just do whatever I want. Well, I can live a life unimpeded. I I don't have to worry of the threat of of, of his overwhelming presence. He's old. He's not going to live much longer. He's in prison. He's restricted. But what this does, and implicitly it calls him, and it, it brings out the importance of Philemon's decision being Philemon's decision. This is what Paul has said. Listen, I don't want to command you. I want to appeal to you on the basis of love. What Paul wants to do is to see his brother in Christ make a decision that is wrought from the Spirit. He wants to see the involvement of the Spirit of Christ producing right action in Philemon. And this should always be our hope for our brothers and sisters in the midst of reconciliation and in the midst of waywardness. We don't want people to make the right decision because we have the ability to force them into it. We want to see people make the right decision because they are living lives submitted to the Spirit of Christ. That's what we want for ourselves. I mean, if I only love my wife, if I only love my kids, if I only do the right thing, if I only don't break the law because I'm terrified of the penalty, because I'm terrified of the punishment, that I'm not making this on the basis of having received the love of Christ. I'm making these decisions because I'm terrified of the punishment. Christian, you live your life not on the basis of being terrified of the punishment. God has taken care of the penalty and the punishment for you. He's taken that on Christ himself. And he calls you on the basis of having received God's redemption, having received his mercy, to operate and to live your life in the full extension and experience of God's love for you. So reconciliation requires love. Recognize this, reconciliation also requires spiritual change. Paul talks about Philemon, and he says, or he talks about Onesimus, rather, and he says, I appeal to you for my child. No, he's not his son. Paul's likely unmarried. What he's talking about is the reality that Onesimus is likely his spiritual child. The fact that Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus and it led to a new life. It led to a change and a transfer, a change of who he was, a spiritual change. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, 1 John 5.1 says this. 
It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, uh, who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. Now, what is this telling us? One, if you have been born again, the love of God is on you. And if I know someone has been born again, then I am found to be loving them. God creates love from, or from Christian to Christian by giving his love to Christians. Look at what he had said there. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. Everyone who loves the Father loves who has been born of him. To be born again is to love fellow Christians. Now this is murky water. This is difficult. But one of the things that we can see from the midst of this is that if we find ourselves not loving one another well, then what it should do in us is it should prompt us to evaluate our submission before God because this isn't, uh, those who've been born uh, uh, again love one another and love one another well unless your brother's a complete hapless nitwit. Unless he's doing something that's really irritating, like chewing with his mouth open or, or driving the speed limit when you're going on a road trip and you're traveling behind him. Those, in those situations, in those occasions, you don't have to love your brother well. No, what we find in the midst of this is the totality of the command is to love him regardless. And John intensifies this in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The work of reconciliation is necessary and required for Christians and for the local church. Whoever says he hates his brother is in darkness. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there's no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Listen. It'd be so much easier, easier to take the approach of let's just agree to disagree and split and go our separate ways. And, and this is really the prevailing uh, winds of our culture. This is much easier. It's much more difficult to live and, and exist and be in a community and a fellowship of other believers with whom you disagree. But every time we work through something difficult, Every time we see a marriage restored, every time we see friendships return, every time we see brothers and sisters in Christ who formerly disagreed and could not stand one another, they despise one another, every time we see them come back together, we see the beautiful unfolding and the painting of the gospel of Jesus Christ unfold in their lives. This is what Paul wants Philemon to see in Onesimus' life. Philemon's likely hacked, irritated, and frustrated that Onesimus ran. <clears throat> he was never very good to begin with, and now here he's run off, and he's taken things that didn't belong to him, and he's taken himself, and he did not even own his own life. He was owned by Philemon. This is why Paul says, listen, I have become his spiritual father. The way you relate to him has changed first and foremost because he has become a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. His life has changed. God has wrought him anew. God has made him to be a new creation. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? This idea that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. 
Now, Paul plays this out in verse 11 by use of this word play that he uses here. Now, interesting for us, the word Onesimus or the name Onesimus means profitable or it means useful. But look at what he says about him. He says, Onesimus was formerly useless to you. So you have this guy whose very name means profitable or useful. And Paul says, listen, you know, for a fact, when he was there in Colossae, when you would say, uh, Onesimus, uh, this is what I need you to take care of this week. This is what I need you to do this week. This is what, these are the charges that I need you to be over. This guy never did what you asked him to do. He was useless for you. Even though his very name meant useful, even though his very name meant profitable, every time you asked him to do something, echoing there in the chambers of your mind was, he's not going to do it. It was a complete and utter waste of time. I don't know why I do this for this guy over and over and over again. I'm like, hey, listen, very explicit directions. You can take out the trash. Now, when I tell you to take out the trash, what I mean in, in that is I need you to gather up all the trash in the house. I need you to replace every bag from, 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 from there so we have an empty bag in the trash can. I need you to take those. Don't put them in the garage. That's not it. I need you to take those. I need you to put them in the orange can. When you've got them in the orange can, I need you to look around for any spare trash that might be lingering around the garage from previous weeks where you've not done everything I asked you to do. I need you to go to that trash. I need you to compact that trash. I need you to put all that trash in the orange can. I need you to take that orange can and relocate it to the end of the driveway. And when you've done that, then you've taken out the trash. Paul comes home, and he looks at the trash can. It's not at the end of the driveway. He looks at the trash bags. They're not, in the trash, uh, not on the trash cans. And how did he discover that? Because he throws trash into the empty trash can with a no trash can liner in there. And what, you know what he thinks? Onesimus. <laughs> Paul says, you remember all these things. He was useless to you. But look at what the change that salvation has produced in him. But now he is useful to you and to me. The gospel has completely changed and transformed Onesimus. The gospel has changed him first and foremost because it has made him to be reconciled to God. He's redeemed. He's no longer a man who lives for his own satisfaction. He's a man who it went from being primarily just a slave to another person to a slave to God and to righteousness. He lives to honor his father in heaven. And on the basis of this change and transformation, Paul tells us that he is useful to me and to you. Onesimus is necessary for the expansion of the gospel. In the role of Onesimus there in Colossae, this community that his name has been a byword since he left, in the midst of this, this community is going to get to see the power of the gospel played out in his life. He is useful to this church. The work of reconciliation requires love. It requires spiritual change. The work of reconciliation requires us to be selfless. When Paul thought about Onesimus, he didn't have the backstory of being this guy who was incredibly frustrating to work with. Likely when Paul encountered Onesimus, he encountered a person who is at the end of their rope, at the end of their line, and a person in need of the good news of the gospel. He says, I'm on the run. I'm terrified. I know that if I'm found... I could either be sent back or put to death or thrown in prison for the rest of my life. And Paul finds him in the midst of this fear, <clears throat> and he sets him free. He sets him free not by canceling his debts to society, but he sets him free from the stain of sin. He sets him free from the personal weight and the culpability of having sinned against a holy God. 
And having told Onesimus the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ in the fullness of time took upon himself in his body Onesimus' own wickedness and waywardness. That Jesus died on the cross taking the very wrath of God and that he was raised again three days later overcoming sin and death. And it is into that reality, that realized reconciliation between Onesimus and a holy God that Paul invites him to enjoy. This is where the change has been accomplished. This is where this, this victory has been won. But in terms of reconciliation and its selfless application, Paul looks at Onesimus and he recognizes all the various ways that he is serving Paul there in Rome. So he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And when Paul describes Onesimus, he says, man, this is somebody I deeply care for. This is somebody who is advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is somebody who is ministering to me personally. So I'm sending back my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. What Paul wants Philemon to understand is that, listen, he's not just one of the guys I have around who's just kind of a yes man and when I want to feel better about myself and say, listen, all those people are wrong and I'm right, right, Onesimus? And Onesimus is like, yes, sir, that's right, that's right, Paul, that's right, Paul. Like, he's not that guy. He is necessary. He has made himself indispensable for the propagation of the gospel. He has made himself necessary for the work there in Rome. There are people coming to know Jesus Christ because Onesimus is in Rome. So when Paul considered this, he's really wrestling with the idea, what does this look like? I know he's violated this brother, and I know this brother's uh, just wonderfully in love with Jesus, and he's doing amazing ministry there in Colossae. But in order that the gospel may go forward, in order that we could see the full power of reconciliation, I know that this brother needs to travel back to that city so that these two men can be reconciled. What a wonderful picture of reconciliation this church could see if this were to take place. All the wrestling and all the wrangling has not been on the part of Onesimus. He's not been dragging his feet saying, well, Paul, let's consider this. Let's just, let, let's, let's just, I, like I get that reconciliation is a big deal, but it's, you know, it's my fanny on the line here. So let's just play this out hypothetically. Maybe we could send him a soft letter that says, how would you feel if I happen to know somebody who ran away from you? Would you receive them back? Check yes or no, and then send, send the vellum back to me. But Onesimus didn't do that. Text doesn't give us any idea that there was any possible equivocation, any doubt, any hesitation in Onesimus. He was so sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ and ready to see reconciliation play itself out within his relationship to his former master and within this local body so that the bride could see this beautiful picture that he willingly put himself in harm's way to go back. It requires us to be selfless. If you're going to be reconciled to your brother or sister, if you're going to be reconciled to your husband or to your wife, if you're going to be reconciled to your children, it's going to require selflessness on your part. Recognize this. If we're going to be reconciled to one another, it's going to require an element of freedom. And this is going to be incredibly difficult. Because oftentimes what we find is that when we encounter the call for freedom, and the call for selflessness, we completely kick selflessness to the curb. Like, you go be selfless. I'm going to pursue freedom. You can't do this. We can't do this in our friendships. We can't do this in our community. We certainly can't do this in our church. 
So both of these things have to be propped up at the same time. It's the idea that we must all pursue selflessness. You know, invariably, there's always the one or two people in the back who are just selfish, selfish jerks, and, right? You've been around long enough, you know this to be true, laugh. Come on now. Invariably, we're always going to find one or two people who are just very selfish, and they are unwilling to yield to selflessness. And this is what makes freedom so incredibly difficult. But if there is not freedom, then there could be no possibility for spiritual growth. Listen, a number of years ago, uh, when I was growing up, we had, we had a dog, and he was wonderful as long as you walked him on a choke chain. And he was wonderful to hunt with as long as you had a shock collar on him. But if either one of those th- two things disappeared, he was the worst dog you, you ever wanted to meet and the best dog you ever wanted to give away, Right? And so anytime you took his leash off in an open area, he would run and you'd never get him back. (laughs) And honestly, some of those times you hoped you'd never get him back because the experience was so terrible. If there are certain requirements to us doing the right thing, then our doing the right thing is only ever based on a fear of punishment. Then our doing the right thing is only on the base of our fear of embarrassment. As Christians, we must operate out of a desire for reconciliation under the freedom of the Spirit. Now, freedom for a Christian is interesting because freedom for a Christian is freedom to follow the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit of God. But it's very difficult to know how the Spirit is communicating to someone else. And as a whole, I think we can agree that we have seen people quick to wield the power of the Spirit, right? And quick to, to kind of throw this out there and say, well, God told me to do thus and so. And we recognize that oftentimes God seems to be decidedly in favor of us exploring our own enjoyment when we see that the way people respond and people communicate that the Spirit is leading them. But the Spirit will lead to the unity of the church. The Spirit will lead to the unity of the church. The Spirit will lead us in selflessness. The Spirit will lead us in love. And where the Spirit of of God is, we will see real, actual life change take place. Paul wants Philemon not to do the right thing because Paul's an apostle. Paul wants Philemon not to do the right thing because he is the senior member of first century Christianity. Paul wants Philemon to do the right thing because he's led by the Spirit. And he desires to honor God in his life. He says, I could have commanded you this, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. There's so many things that that this begins to open up the box of, and none of them that we have really time to address this morning. It's going to be hard for us going forward. It's going to be difficult, and it has been difficult this last few months for us to disagree and to continue to make strides together. It's hard to communicate well. Everybody wants to communicate a different way. I only want to receive texts. I only want to receive emails. I only want to receive Facebook messages. Listen, you're in like the seventh circle of hell. You should learn a different way of communicating. There are a whole host of things we can disagree with. There are a whole host of things that we can struggle to move forward in. 
we have to find ways to move forward together. Gospel is so important. We're going to get sidetracked on the mask business. We're going to get sidetracked on the election. We're going to get sidetracked in, in, in who wins and who loses and colors of, of this and colors of that and response of this and have you read this article or that article. All these things are going to disappear. What lasts is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's at stake is our reputation for reconciliation and the gospel in this community. It's so incredibly important. But it's only ever going to be as impactful as each of us allow it to be in our own lives. This work of reconciliation, it can't be the work of the staff. There aren't enough hours in the day, there's not enough money in the bank. It can't be the work of the elders. It can't be the work of the deacons. And I know a lot of you are thinking, it can't, it, it, I know who it can be the work of. It can be the work of the women because they do all the work in the church anyway. Listen, I'm married to one of them. It cannot be the work of the women. It requires all of us. And this is going to be difficult, more difficult for some of us than others. Because this doesn't get to be a choose-your-own-adventure. This isn't the book that we all read together and we're all going to end up in the same place together as a church body. We have to work on this together. And it's going to require more sacrifice than some of us than others. And some of us, in the midst of this, you're going to come to this realization. This is not the church for me. I can't support its leaders. I can't support their decisions. This is not the church for me. Listen. I don't want you to think that I'm being disingenuous. I, I, I say this a lot. I am more concerned that you find a church that you can be passionately and actively involved in than you find this church to be that church. I mean that. I'm not trying to run off difficult people. That would be easier. Man, we want you to stick around. I think God is most glorified in us working through hard things together. But make, most, make no mistake, we will have to work through these things together. Our community's lives are at stake. Our neighbor's salvation is at stake. Taking the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world is at stake. And reconciliation with one another, because we have already been reconciled to a holy God, is what's on the line. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your goodness, for this opportunity to gather with brothers and sisters in this place, some of us. We feel the need for reconciliation. We feel that we have been personally wronged, violated, sinned against. God, would you help us in love to go to our brother and sisters who have sinned against us and in love would you lead us to extend forgiveness to them this could be a place of reconciliation and healing that this could be a place of forgiveness 
Father, we pray for those who in this hearing, in this room, they need to be reconciled to you. God, that you would convict them, that you would bring them to an awareness that they have sinned against a holy God, but that you offer them forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ, that you have already borne the penalty and the punishment for their sins in Christ's sacrifice. God, would you lead us in this, that you might be glorified by us in this place and beyond. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.